Hey guys, welcome back to the Book Club podcast, Page Back, the official book club podcast of Digital and Creative Media Works. For each week, sorry, each month, uh, we read a fantasy book, whether it's contemporary or it's a classic, and we try to break it down to work out what we can learn from it uh, and, and look at it in retrospect. Uh, my name is David. My name is Laura. And this month, Laura, we this was one of your suggestions. Um, it was on my to-read list. I'm not throwing you under the bus immediately. Look, I'm not gonna. I, I don't think it's your fault. Uh, we'll get to it. <laughs> but <laughs> look, I, I I generally enjoyed myself, but David had a harder time with it. I so. had some. I had some challenges with it. Um, we're talking about Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lani Taylor. Uh, it's a fantasy novel published in 2011 by Hatchet Book Group, and it's the first of a trilogy about this character, Caro. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I think it's Karu. I've I've been saying Karu and I feel like... I've been saying Karu, but it's... Karu, Karu, I don't know. I, well, all I think of when you say Karu, though, is like, I don't know, it sounds like a bird. Well, I mean, like, one of the characters calls her Roo. Mm. Then it's probably Karu. Or Karu. That doesn't actually answer the question <laughs> of where the, of where the first True. sound goes. Um, I just wanted to touch on the top of the show that we posted a... Uh, a poll to our Patreon uh, in the middle of the month, looking at what book we're going to cover next month. Um, and it looks like Neil Gaiman's American Gods is one, which I'm very excited about because I I've like... I've never read this book. I love American um, It's so weird. So... Uh, it's... Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a fucking wild ride. Um, so if you wanted to read next month's book, we're covering American Gods by Neil Gaiman. The book, not the TV show, they do have quite a lot of differences. I'm going to have to um, go out and buy that. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm excited to get back into it and reread it because I remember it being very, very weird. Um, so before we get into anything, uh, any of the summary, anything like that, what were your kind of initial thoughts of the book? Because initial, I, yeah, like, I kind of told you like when you read it this time versus last time, has your has your opinion changed? Like coming back to it, um, or had you read it previously? Like, I had what was not read vibe? it before, so this is like my first read of this book. And what was your kind of um, vibe on it? Look, I really enjoyed it. I, I found it. It's not really a hugely academic book or, like, it's just, I just found it fun. Um, yeah. And I, you know, liked a lot of the things in it. Um, there's some stuff where, particularly when it comes to, like, the the love story and spoilers um, on this one, yeah. clearly. Spoilers on all book club, of, of course it's yeah. a spoiler thing. Um, but particularly when it comes to, like, the love story being, like, their souls are calling to each other and this is magic bullshit. I am not into that. No. Like, I'm more into, like, you know, falling in love for, like, reasons that make sense. Like For reasons, you mean? Not just... Yeah. It's fate, yeah. I guess. That that was probably my least favourite thing about yeah. this. Um, but um, I enjoyed the writing. Um, you know, it's... Um, particularly, like, the first bit where it's sort of introducing everything okay um uh i thought the first three chapters like it sort of it starts off like introducing prague and stuff in the mm -hmm. first chapter then it moves on to like um her art class and then oh hey magic yeah it it doesn't feel too um like anachronistic when you're reading it i don't think like there's sometimes a tendency for that kind of thing where it's like going to college, and then, like, bam, magic school, and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I didn't get that vibe off this. It very much felt like a natural transition. Yeah, so I find, I, I think a lot of, like, the, the, the like, scene setting and the world and the stuff felt, felt very grounded, mm -hmm. and that's probably, I think, one of the things that I enjoyed most about this. I, I find, I like, I did enjoy myself a lot, like, aside yeah. from the earlier stated caveat. Yeah, we'll get it's to some of that The later. kind of 
fantasy book that I just kind of like to read and chill out with. I I don't disagree. My biggest problem with it is that a friend of mine, I was explaining it to her, and she went, it's just Tumblr, but if it was a book. <laughs> and that is totally my opinion of this book. It's like, if Tumblr made a book, I... this is the book that it would make. Um, it's got all of the tropes that, like, because... <sighs> When I started reading this book, I was like, oh, fuck's sake. Like, I had that moment where I was like, oh, God. This is like, this is someone's, f- I could tell it was, I was like, this is someone's first book. This is no slight on Lani Taylor. Her later writing is phenomenal. But I was like, it's clearly someone's first book. It's very young writing, even though she was 35 or whatever. It's very young writing. Um, it, it, for me, just reading it anyway, I was like, oh, this isn't developed fiction, which doesn't have to be to be fun. But I just remember, like, yeah, the first. I liked the exposition at the start, but then, like, the next sort of ten chapters after, like, chapter four, I really yeah. struggled getting through. But once I got through that, I was like, oh, cool, this is really fascinating and interesting. And then I kind of got to the slog of the kind of ending bit as well and struggled with that. But before we get into that, quick summary, quick re- recap of the plot in case you read it a while ago and you've forgotten or you don't want to read the book and you just want to be here for us talking about it. So, we start our story following Karu. <laughs> Karu, I don't fuck. Karu is fine. A 17-year-old Prague art student with blue hair. Initially, we see Karu going about her regular life. She attends class with her best friend, Zuzana, while trying to avoid her ex-boyfriend, Kaz. We start to learn that Karu was raised by Chimera. I assume that's how you say it. Chimera? Chimera? I... The pronunciation is gonna be wrong. Um, a Look, group of... it's debatable. <laughs> Let's just say that it's Chimera, and then if it's wrong, please don't email me. I've been pronouncing it Chimera, but... Chimera sounds more correct. Uh, a group of semi-monster creatures who are her family. The Chimera live in an interdimensional workshop owned by Brimstone, Karu's gruff, distant father figure. Brimstone summons Karu to go on a job to fetch teeth from a hunter. While Karu doesn't know what Brimstone does with the teeth, teeth, she grows increasingly wary of her life being interrupted by summons to fetch teeth at all hours of the day and night. After a regular errand collecting a small hole of teeth, Karu notes the portal back to the workshop has been scorched with a black hand mark. The perpetrator of the black hand marks turn out to be three angels, and they are scorching black hand marks onto every portal to Brimstone's workshop around the world. Karu goes to the workshop. Karu wh- goes to the workshop for another summons. This time, heading to Morocco, where she meets an old grave, rob- grave robber, Izil, who has been cursed by the knowledge and burden of a fallen angel, Razgut, that clings to his back. As Karu makes her way back to the portal, Izil is confronted by Akiva, an angel, and Akiva demands to know about Karu. Akiva then immediately attacks Karu. Karu barely escapes with her life, feeling, fleeing into the portal where her wounds are treated by her Chimera family. While her caretakers are busy, Karu slips from her bunk, taken by curiosity because for the first time she is in the workshop and Brimstone is elsewhere. Karu sneaks through a forbidden door to discover that Brimstone's workshop sits high in a fortress in an entirely different world. Brimstone discovers Karu and in a rage throws her through a portal back to Prague. The portal is sealed behind her, as are all the portals across the world, and bloody, defeated and alone, Kara returns to her apartment. The months pass and Kara travels around the world, collecting wishes from collecting wishes from collectors by force, eventually wishing for the ability to fly. Kara reconnects with Razgut, learning that Izil threw himself off a building to his death. Kara and Razgut strike a careful alliance, as Razgut promises he knows of a portal to Eretz, the world of Brimstone and Chimera. Returning to Prague, Karu is confronted again by the angel Akiva. While the two initially fight, they quickly feel that they have a deep connection, and despite her misgivings, the two grow close quickly. Akiva tells of the war between the Chimera and Seraphim, and tells Karu that her tattoos are the mark of a dark sorcerer, and Karu begins to realize she has been tailored to be a weapon to kill Seraphim. 
As their connection grows, Akiba discovers Karu's wishbone necklace, which she was gifted by Brimstone as the portals closed, and Akiba declares he knows who Karu really is. Before we learn the truth, however, Akiba's brother and sister intervene, forcing Akiba to choose between his family and Karu. Akiva chooses Karu, and a battle ensues. Karu flees to wait for Akiva with Razgut, preparing to travel to Eretz. After three days, Akiva finally surfaces. He's solemn, explaining that Karu needs to break the wishbone in order to learn the truth about herself. We're then treated to an extended flashback where we learn about Akiva and Madrigal's relationship, how she saved him on the beach, how he taught himself magic in order to visit her, how she forsake her potential betrothal to be with him. The flashback goes on and we learn how they came to be together, all the while intercut with myths about how both races came to be. This includes how Brimstone uses teeth to build new bodies for Chimera warriors after their deaths. We then learn that Madrigal, Karu's past self, angered her sister by being too beautiful and despite her best efforts was ultimately betrayed by her sister, resulting in her execution due to her treason with Akiva. Madrigal then occupies her sister's body and releases Akiva. The story ends with Akiva admitting that he used his freedom and his knowledge of the secrets of the Chimera, and he was ultimately responsible for dooming Brimstone and his ilk and killing them. We're not entirely sure whether he actually kills them. Kara leaves with Razgut through the portal in the sky, and the book ends. Laying it out like that, I now realize one of my fundamental problems with the book is the structure. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have one. That's a big part of why I think I really struggled. Like, it doesn't have five acts at all. Um, and I wonder if that I mean, I've got a quote here from Lani Taylor, but was that something that you sensed go like as you got more and more through it? It feels very organic, but not in at times, not in like the fun organic way where you're like, oh, this is like a Stephen King on cocaine writing 400 words yeah. a day kind of thing. I mean, definitely at certain points, like when um, when Karuk sort of gets separated from everyone else, it's from from like the Chimera when mm-hmm. the portals get burned um that really that was like oh okay this is gonna get interesting yeah, right I was super like jazz when that happened she's gonna get badass and self-sufficient yeah and cool. um it just kind of fizzled a little bit yeah um, well then akiva turns up and they're just in love and you're like oh i thought she was gonna go around the country like and on then, like a hero's and journey she's like oh, i'm gonna go to um elsewhere and and he's like no you can't go there um, let me come with you, and she's like, "Okay." And you're like, "It's just happening so fast." And, yeah. and definitely, I I definitely found that the flashback part dragged a bit. It uh, just, I, it's like I don't care about like the the upshot of like all of the things that you learn in the flashback is pretty valuable for like the end of the book, where like you you get to the end of the book and you're like putting together everything. There's sort of right. a sense of inevitability about the the way that things happened in the way yes. that um the way the that let that series of events leading to the chimera getting destroyed by um yeah by akiva's vengeance that was that sort of had a sense of inevitability lent to it by the fact that oh um this guy liked to talk while he was torturing and then he got yeah um but that, I don't know, for me, like, if you're going to do that, because like, that's only because you spend the 100 pages before it in a flashback. Yeah. That's not good exposition. That's just no. like, oh, fuck, I don't know how to set up an ending. Um, Let's quickly give you all the information in a it row. It would be, 
I mean... There's ways that you can... I don't know. Yeah. Just... Like, if they could have... Like, instead of putting a block of exposition, if they could have found a way to weave it in earlier, maybe that would have been yeah. better. Or even, like, um, use the exposition from different characters with, like... Because we already know that and, characters like, are telling conflicting information. Well, yeah, because, like, Akiva was already saying some stuff about Madrigal through the beginning of the book. If you expanded some of that stuff out yeah. to be more expositional then it wouldn't have felt like such a dump at the end. And you could have also used Razgot as a character who no longer... like. So what I kind of imagine in my head that would make this really be interesting and compelling is like, Razgot, this gross, horrible thing, yeah. tells Karu the truth about all this stuff, but Akiva kind of bends his truth because he, cause like, he's trying to justify his vengeance of what he's done, and then you would have these two unreliable narrators, and instead yeah. of what you get on that bridge scene, which is where Akiva has to choose between like the girl that he's cosmically in love with for some reason and... <laughs> his brother and sister instead what you have is like Cairo choosing between there wasn't this really that much development in the brother and sister to make that a very harrowing decision well for, to be like, fair neither was there much i think there was more development in um madrigal's sister and her relationship with yeah. madrigal because that felt much more real than yeah than like just these two angels who were like what worries what are you doing dude and he was like i don't know i'm just and they're like completely like unsympathetic to anything um, i guess they let him go but i didn't really buy that as them i don't know it's don't just know. it felt a bit they weren't very well developed so it co- got to the point where you're like oh he has to choose and you're like i don't care just you're gonna choose karu just yeah already. It, a lot of that stuff even though it like felt inevitable which is what you talked about i think it didn't it didn't feel um i never felt like it was going the other way at any point yeah because of how like instantly they had a connection and that there's a quote that i have from lonnie taylor where she says um and I quote, this was a character-led story, and though there were at any given time story beats I was working toward, I didn't have a plot outlined in advance. I tried to at times, but the story resisted. It wanted to unfold naturally, and it did. I'm only now realizing how much my process has evolved over the course of writing this trilogy. So even she recognizes that there is an element to this book that feels very like, it just kind of happened. And then editor, because it's a, it's published by, it's a Harper Collins imprint, isn't it? Oh no, it's a hot of, so it's an imprint of... You've still got a... The uh, sticker on the back of that book. Yeah. Um, I do. It's a... I don't take them off. I'm the worst guy. Um, <laughs> it's a hatchet book, uh, Harder. So, yeah, that makes sense. So, basically, what that means is, like, they would have edited it to publish, not edited it to be good mm. or, like, structurally sound, which are two very different things that you're trying to do with the book. So, I understand why it kind of feels young. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to see, then, what the how the other two books would develop supposedly the third one is balls to the wall incredible structurally Ooh, okay so I might, I'm, like i'm i'm definitely wanting to yeah. read on just to see how she because like the world is so interesting more like <sighs> yeah is it i've i kind of i kind of I, I don't know it's very like grecian in a way that i think has been done i don't know like yeah like okay i mean a, f- a few not done but like it clearly draws on some stuff that i've seen before like you know, a lot of the book, the book's themes and imagery relies on, like, the Christian pantheon and the Jewish yeah. angelic hierarchy. And it departs from, like, Isaiah's description of angels as having, like, six wings. But we've all moved past that um, <laughs> in the Hellenistic period. Which basically, like, this book draws a lot on the mythology from the Hellenistic period. Which was right. this period of Mediterranean history between the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC and then the Roman Empire... Um, that kind of came to prominence in 31 BC in the Battle of Actium. But, like, it definitely feels to me of this mishmash of, mish, mishmash of references from places that I don't hate, but I didn't feel like it... There was no point where I went, oh, that's something I've never seen. Right. Um, the blue hair was something that I went, oh, okay, that's actually, like, okay. Even though I was making fun of the thing being, like, a book about Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. 
the the way that that paid off later on when you found out that wishes uh, cost pain and the brimstone never told her i went oh that's a really cool payoff of something really subtle and you know all those kind of trivial things that uh caro uses the wishes for you go oh like that 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 worked for me but i felt like some of the some of the world building payoff just didn't yeah. didn't work because you got told about it in the last 100 pages of the book and i just yeah. kind of went ugh like but i just from from like a um from from a perspective of like i just kind of want to see what happens and where she takes this um yeah like literally all the chimera are dead um or they seem to be unless they've hidden away somewhere well we don't know for um, sure well we we know from hearsay and we know that um akiva has a page from Karu's sketchbook. Yes, we don't actually know who's dead and who's alive, though. But Be- she left that sketchbook in the tower, so they definitely got into the city and yes. slaughtered. Um, I think it would be a weird series if Brimstone died immediately, given how prominent he was. It would be. It would be. But maybe he is dead, but he found some way to put his soul somewhere. Well, because they can use the, the, the smoke apparatus to... Or if you have a strong enough will, you can just, like... You can apparently just force your way in, which I thought that was really cool. That was awesome. But that would have been a good... Like, again, all of the stuff that was fucking badass in this book was not set up at any point. And I wonder if that's just, like, an editing thing. Because, like... Probably. Th- there's a rule that um that we talk about a lot in the editing process, which not everyone abides by. I mean, it's very much like a story grid thing. Um, and uh, Blake Snyder, who did Save the Cat, uh, is some, a big proponent of this as well, which is, like, if you have payoff in any part of your story... You have to have enough exposition in the first act, so talking the five-act structure, that when someone finishes the book and goes back, they can go, oh, all of this was already here. And this book does that to an extent with certain things. There is things, a little bit of that. But it's not in a way that feels satisfying because, again, you do spend so long in that flashback that it feels like any setup that was created is subsumed by the fact that now you know literally everything about these characters almost like there's like no mystery after the flashback no that was one of my, one of my biggest exactly it's like the the only mystery we're left with is how to brimstone save uh madrigal's soul that's one thing that's not touched on because she doesn't remember that and the other mystery is is brimstone alive but the mystery is brimstone alive is the central crux of the book it's not produced from the revelation yeah and how did uh, how did Madrigal's soul survive is not set up at any point yeah. during the rest of the story. Um, there's like this weird, like the way that this book ends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the end. She's like, oh, I'm pretty sure she she thinks that all of her family are dead. Mm-hmm. But it goes, oh, um, there was no more happiness. But under the misery, there was hope that the name Brimstone had given her was more than a whim, that this was not the end. And it's like... What are yeah. you trying to set up? It's very... Like, that, yeah, that's the stuff that... That's the first thing that gets cut in the edit. They go, that's overriding. A lot of this book, I was like, oh, that's overwritten. And it's like... She's, like, trying to um, to imply that maybe the Chimera aren't all dead, but, like... It, or that they're not all lost, um, in a way. Which I, I got... I already got that from Akiva's explanation. Like, I thought that was already enough subtext, but he doesn't say, I killed them. He says, I told them about... Yeah. About that. And clearly he's been Well, he had to be there to get the sketchbook page. So, like, that's enough subtext, but then she feels the need to explain it at the end. And that's the first thing that gets cut from the edit, realistically. Like, that's just overwritten. And it's like, yeah, okay, they might not all be dead, or they might be dead, but 
they might be able to be saved. But that was the that's um, what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I totally but, agree. Like, but that's that's the whole plot of the book, you, though. Why would you put that at the like? It's if you're gonna put something at the end just to like tease stuff like a sting add new information yes you add like you know Kara goes through the crack and she sees something and she goes oh that doesn't line up with anyone else's story right or it opens up to somewhere different it's not Eretz it's somewhere else and you're like where the fuck she at and that would be like a great stinger because yeah. then you know it's like the after credits scene yeah instead of being like the thing that you already thought was true maybe it's true it's like yeah yeah that was the part of the book thank you um yeah. you, you know a great cliffhanger ending like yeah, hit me um, with it. Yeah, this this was not it. But like, there's there's a cliffhanger hanger ending from one of the Matthew Riley books, and um, it is a literal cliffhanger because the <laughs> the um the character literally the last page is falling into a bottomless abyss. See, I like stuff like that. Well, yeah, like what's gonna happen? Um, Matthew okay. Riley does great cliffhangers. I like Matthew Riley's plots. I can't stand his writing. Um, he's so American. <laughs> let, let me touch on quickly just two quick things. Um, the color symbolism in this book is pretty heavy. Mm. Um, uh, Definitely. The, so the blue hair um, of Karu and then Akiva's like yellow eyes is derived from Hinduism, where gods uh, had like they chose blue as like a divine color and then like red and like yellow is like earth and fire and like ruin and smite um this is like pretty common in like western canon uh Kara's blue hair and madrigal's cooler colors are like much calmer than akiva's kind of fiery disposition yep it's also i think why lani taylor has a tendency to render akiva with like such simplicity um he's either like an emotionless murderer or he's just this like in love hunky man oh man yeah he, you know what i mean yeah there's a lot of that where he's just like uh. <sighs> yeah i we i want to i want to keep the love stuff for the last bit because it's the longest bit of research i did but there is something to that where like i mean okay there's also the fact that um akiva is literally the messenger of like Karu's history which like the word angelos the origin of the word angel literally means messenger so some stuff in this that i'm like oh that's not even symbolism she just wikipedia'd angel and went <laughs> messenger got it what should it you know like that kind of evolved naturally from her research right. um but yeah like those colors it's not complicated I didn't, I didn't see that i wasn't like oh what a curious use of yeah which doesn't need to be it's simple um i, I thought it was especially curious given the way that the book deconstructs good and evil though yeah um which brings me to the ancient greek influence that's heavy in this work which i mentioned before that kind of grecian athenian like style of angel but i think even more so the the actual visual imagery of like the angels and the monsters and stuff um you know those flashbacks where akiba's like or not flashbacks where akiba's like describing the wars and like these kind of these pitch battles yeah um it's very grecian like writers like euripides and um sophocles rendered this kind of fight a lot where they were like it's these big titan titanist kind of leaders with the you know these huge pitch epic fights um, and these same writers are the ones that would eventually inspire, like, the Renaissance paintings that you see. Right. Um, which is, like, you know, if you want a quick handy reference, like, all of the fight scenes from Thor Ragnarok where they kind of do that slow motion, thousand frames a second, like, it looks like a Renaissance painting. That's all inspired from Grecian theater. Yeah. So you can see, like, the through line in culture to how she got to this kind of visual style. Um, 
And even the way the book deconstructs, I've written this. So I've written this down in inverted commas. Um, <laughs> deconstructs the war chicken and the egg problem of does war make monsters or do monsters make war? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, that falls directly in line with Euripides' belief that storytellers are not only supposed to entertain but should educate their audience and represent their audience. Um, there's even a quote from the book I- where Akiva says, or I don't know who says it. I've I've not, read, but it's quote. Have you ever asked yourself, do monsters make war or does war make monsters? I'm End pretty quote. sure that wasn't Akiva. No, that might no, be... He's not that um, Might be Karu, maybe. He's really not that yeah, insightful. He's a big bludgeon. Um, literally, like, uh, this is this is another thing that um, that gets me a little bit with this. Um, so, aside from Karu and Akiva and maybe Brimstone, nobody seems to question the fact that they're all just fighting. Yeah. Maybe they should stop fighting and maybe maybe yeah. this war isn't gonna end well for anybody it does yeah um, it does well, it's like it's like a 14 year olds reading on like well, war's bad it's like yeah yep yeah. actually you know what it feels like it feels like um you know when someone like either discovers god or they become an atheist and it's all they fucking talk about for months on end after it happens that's what this book vibes me as with like war where it's like <laughs> dude war's fucking bad and you're like yeah, like yeah 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 we i we, yeah yeah Dude, God's not real. Yeah, I worked that out when I was twelve. Why are you telling me a, a bar? You're thirty-five. Like, um, which is fine. Like, I don't think it was trying to do anything more complicated. Um, it does go on about it, though. I mean, uh, like, surely there's like other resistance people, like, like anti-war people within. Well, we know that the tribe that Madrigal came from didn't participate in the war, right? So and then there's another of... tribe that like doesn't. I'm pretty sure they they mentioned another tribe. Yeah. It just felt like even like Brimstone could have like been a that, bit like... more like I don't know he could have been the guy who's like I do it because I have to I don't fucking like it yeah have, and you know clearly he suffers from it but and it would have like, been nice to see that sure the emperor from the angels is oh god he's so he's like the absolute monarch type thing and what like, he what is he what's his thing he fucks and makes sons or he fucks he, and makes warriors yeah he makes he just like he has like a bunch of concubines that's and, some Game of Thrones shit um <laughs> he just has a bunch of children and they become his warriors yeah they like um, abduct them yeah that shit's fucked up though that's they like just some... get taken from their concubines and taught to fight right which is then it's like well who's the real monster um and there's even a quote from the book that i pulled um where i i can't think of who this is because again i didn't write this down but um it's written i quoted these as i was reading it um, it is a condition of monsters that they do not perceive themselves as such. The dragon, you know, hunkered in the village, devouring maidens, heard townsfolk cry monster and looked behind him. That was Izil. Izil, there you go. Oh, I like Izil's character. He's tight. Um, yeah, he's probably yeah. one of the better ones. The the characters who seem to realize then that war is bad are the ones that are burdened by the knowledge of it. And Izil is like a great example where he's literally burdened by the knowledge um, of what he's learned. And I think that the story is trying to say that... Um, uh, when you do have that knowledge and you work through a system, so in this case, the system being war, um, you're kind of burdened by that, and it's like a it's a weight that you have to bear. Like Brimstone is someone that is weighed down by the knowledge of what he's doing, and but he knows he has to do it because what choices he have. Um, Akiva is weighed down by the knowledge of what he's done. Um, Madrigal is weighed down by by the knowledge of that she's failed her sister, and that ultimately leads Mind to her you, downfall. Mind the, you, the, th- there's a I feel. I think a problem with Akiva and his motivations is that his entire motivation in this entire book is magical. Like, everything. Like, 
Yeah. From the first time that he decides that he's never going to kill another Chimera, that's all because of Madrigal. Yep. And yeah. It's the, not good. Then, like, she dies and he's like, oh, better go on a revenge spree and kill all the Chimera now. And then he realizes that she's alive and he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Like There's no, up. like, remorse there. It's just, oh, I killed your family. Sorry. Fucked up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, does that mean we can finally talk about Romeo and Juliet? Oh. Because <laughs> I, oh. I have what might be the most ridiculous meta reading of this story that I've done in a while. Oh, and that's saying shit. something if you watch the rest of our content. Oh, I'm way excited. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> there's a conversation that happens between Madrigal and Akiva. Where Madrigal says love is a luxury, and Akiva says no, love is an element. An element like air to breathe, earth to stand on. This concept is proposed by Akiva pretty late in the book, by the way. This is like during yeah. the ending of the flashback. But early in their relationship, because it's flashback. Because time. Um, this is a complete counterpoint to Karu's feeling of longing. She feels like she's empty and she's unwhole. And she, like, there's a quote where um, uh, it says. From the book, Karu wished she could be the kind of girl who was complete unto herself, comfortable in solitude, serene. But she wasn't. She was lonely, and she feared the missingness within her as if it might expand and cancel her. God, I hate the fucking, like, It's so overwritten. Uh, soulmate <laughs> bullshit, like... She craved the presence beside her, solid, fingertips light at the nape... I, sh- sh- I feel like I it should mean, be ASMR. You can... Fingertips light at the uh... nape of her neck, and a voice meeting hers in the dark. Someone uh... who would wait with an umbrella to walk her home in the rain and smile like sunshine when he saw her coming, who would dance with her on her balcony, keep his promises, and know her secrets, you know, and you make, can... make, tiny, make a tiny world wherever he was, with just her, and his arms, and his whispers, and his trust. That is a full four-line paragraph. You know, you can, you can want uh, a fulfilling relationship with a significant other without feeling it deep in your soul. No, you can't. Because this is, you in this I agree, but in this case you can't because it's Romeo and Juliet, man. Yeah, okay. but even Romeo and Juliet had to fall in love. They didn't. It took well, like I mean, four days. Okay. I know. I know. Okay. But <clears throat> I'm. I. This is. I'm excited. Are you ready to dive oh, into? God. Okay. First of all, I do hate the way that this renders love as like this kind of cosmic force. Me too. Um, love is about like being able to wake up in the morning and like not hate the person that you're sleeping beside love and at be first like. First side is like one of my least favorite tropes ever. Yeah. <laughs> I. I want love after 27 dates and it's like they burped yes. and it smelled terrible. Why do you like, think I like yeah. Beauty and the Beast? Like. Dude. Aside from all of the entrapment stuff, it's... They, they have, have a relationship. They relate to each other, and they have to grow as people together. <sighs> okay, so the book draws obvious parallels between longing and love, and they're kind of like these opposite sides of the same spectrum, where, like, Karu feels so fucking empty, and Madrigal feels so full because of Akiva, and they both feel that because of Akiva, essentially. So one of them because she got caught and she got executed. That means, like, Karu feels empty because of that past life. Madrigal feels full because of the life she had. Um, this is kind of undercut by how homicidal Akiva is. He's like Romeo, but 20 times more murdery. <laughs> um, so the fact that uh, Starcross lovers Akiva and Karu are almost exact renderings of Romeo and Juliet means the themes of the story tend to reflect the themes of the play. Um, so I just sat down and I wrote out the themes that I know about the play and I wanted to see if they applied to the story. So I'm keen to hear what you think. Okay. I'm going to go through them one by one. I got three of them and I just want you to, once I've explained the theme of the play and the relationship, tell me if you think it's off base or not. Mm. Bearing in mind that they basically pretty much match up perfectly. (laughs) 
<laughs> Are you is that is that a subtle dig at whatever I'm about to say? No, you can be wrong and right, but it's like you know, there's there's one right answer, so it's fine. Um, and I'll be hurt forever, and I'll have my feelings <laughs> injured, and I'm very delicate. So whatever you do next, know that I will feel my own gulf of longingness longingness within me until I find my stuff. Oh God! So the first theme that Romeo and Juliet obviously explores is love. Mm-hmm. However, Shakespeare subverts the typical love story tropes by adding little sprinkles of weird shit. So at one point, which is one of my favorite parts of the play, it's not until hindsight you realize it's weird, but uh, Juliet soliloquies and Romeo eavesdrops. In in modern renditions, there's a balcony. The word balcony didn't exist. It wasn't on a balcony in the play. Don't worry about it. But she has this soliloquy about like how much she loves Romeo, and he eavesdrops on it. This basically allows the plot to like speed along. They don't have to court right. each other. That comes back to what they you said They don't have before. to be like, does he like me? No, they skip that immediately because he hears her say, I'm way into this dude. And same thing with, with this story where, like, Karu and Akiva have, like, the immediate device of Akiva has that shared memory of, like, I'm reminded by magic. I'm reminded of magical. And Karu has that thing of, like, I feel empty. Um, but on top of that, Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet equates love and sex with death. So does a lot of his work. Uh, by example, just because it's easy and it's the climax of the play. Um, when Juliet's fake death happens, uh, it's described by Capulet as uh, the act having deflowered his daughter, which is, like, very sexual. Um, and before Juliet ganks herself, because she sees that Romeo's dead, uh, she says, and I quote, Oh, happy dagger, this is thy sheath, there rust, and let me die. So the sheath is obviously, like, Rom- Romeo... So Juliet is Romeo's yes. sheath. Yeah, uh, the yes. rust is like sex da- daggers, and then death. Da- yeah. Daggers and sheaths and stuff were a very common metaphor. It's about fucking. For, yeah. Um, so the idea here is that Karu and Akiva have experienced a similar convergence of sex and love and death, where it seems that if they could only achieve being together, whether it's as Madrigal and Akiva or as Karu and Akiva, <laughs> they would somehow like complete each other. The irony, however, in contrast to Shakespeare, is that... Um, their love leads to Akiva brutally murdering everybody. <laughs> so it's like an inversion of Shakespeare where it's like, in Shakespeare's one, it's like two young lovers, what dumb shits. But in this one, it's like two young lovers and he killed a whole race of people. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> he committed genocide, but it's... Uh, I mean, in uh, Shakespeare, doesn't that get them to stop the feud? Yeah, but yeah, it, it's the opposite effect. Although I guess in this one, it might as well. We don't know, but yeah, uh, I just, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but um, like, yeah, in this one, it had it completely... Like, I definitely got the Romeo and Juliet vibes, yeah, but, yeah. like, nobody was like, oh, how tragic. Everyone was just like, well, I guess they're dead now. They're dead. It's super bad. That actually brings me to my next theme, Fate and Chance. So, obviously, this this fucking book deals with this a lot, which is fine. I don't, I don't hate that. Um, It's just not something I would do, personally, and, like, because I find it very... Not uninteresting, but I find that Fate and Chance can be a bit, like, deterministic, and we've... I've talked about this before with Ben in different episodes, but mm-hmm. in Romeo and Juliet, they're like described as star-crossed lovers um, because fate has decided they should be together. In the same way, Karu and Akiva and Akiva and Madrigal feel this like irresistible and cosmic force that kind of... He's like, my soul is drawn to, and you're like, ugh. That's a, his dick is drawn to her, that's for damn sure. <laughs> oh my um, God. That's all it is. He's just like, I'm really horny and I'm an angel. And I, fate? Um, the fates seem to align at the party where like they find each other again and it all works out. Um, and there's a big argument here, which I enjoy between different scholars of Shakespeare, which I'm curious to what, see what you think about this book. So, there's mm-hmm. one argument where all of it is like a series of chances, you mm-hmm. know. 
Akiva killing everyone in vengeance and dooming the very brimstone who saved his life, saved his love. That's just kind of ironic and unfortunate, and it's like a big, you know, it's it's a series of unlucky circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's very that's a melodrama, right? It's right. Uh, everything it just kind of happened, and what what a sad story, right? Mm. Or is it fate? This was all meant to come to pass. Then it's a tragedy because no one can escape the outcomes that 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 were born to them. Um, and I'm curious to see what you think with this book because obviously, like, yeah, that. Even something as simple as, like, Akiva kills everybody in his, like, fleeting vengeance or whatever. Ultimately killing the person, Brimstone, we assume, ki- we assume killing Brimstone, the actual person who saved his love's life. There's a, there's a, there's a, a sweet irony to that. And it's like, if yeah. it's, if it's all chance, then it's just this huge melodrama. But if it's fate, then it's a tragedy. What do you, what do you, what do you think? Mm. How did it, how did it strike you when you were reading it? Did you feel like it was like this... Uh, like a soap opera, or were you like, this is very sad and unfortunate? Kind I mean, of. The... Fate isn't really something that I believe in. Mm-hmm. I think Akiva's just a bit of a fucking vengeful dumbass. To be fair, I also don't believe in angels, so. True. It's kind of a balancing act. True. Yeah. I mean, the book was definitely going to. Definitely, and I did mention a sense of inevitability. Like, the book was definitely going for that. Yeah. Um,. I think that's just because it take, touches on those Romeo and Juliet things so much. They give you that vibe. Yeah. Um, okay, that's interesting, though, because when I was reading it, I was trying to work out if I actually... Not if I actually... Oh, it's going to sound bad. I'm trying to work out if I actually cared about these characters in a deep way, because what I cared about was what was going to happen. I was like, the plot interests me. And yeah. Be- Lonnie Taylor describes it as a character-led story, which is different than a character-driven story. Which I want to make very clear before we move on to the next thing. Okay, well, wait, what's the difference? A character-led story is where a writer says, characters did their own thing, man. I just wrote them, man. It was fucking so crazy. It came to me, they spoke to me, and I did what they what they wanted to do, right? It's character-led. It's like, you know, she talks about, like, the story pushback, you know? Um, so not- why did you make Akiva an asshole then? That's not a real thing, by the way. Hmm? Writers who say that are out of their fucking minds. That's not a real thing. It's fine. You're the one um, who made Akiva into an, into a fucking vengeful <sighs> asshole. It, but it felt like because he's a counterpoint to Karu's like kindness or or her her loneliness. Well, like then the fact that they were together changed nothing. Yeah. It. Well. <sighs> yeah. I don't have a. He def- went right back to being a bad angel boy. I don't have a defense for that because it feels like she didn't plan that properly. Because again, it was character led. Character driven is different. That's where you construct a plot. Del- or you you write a plot that deliberately is driven by the character's decision making, but follows the structure. So like they can work for very different things. So typically in literary fiction, so more like high, what what uh, critics would consider to be like high art in mm. writing. So like literary fiction where it's like a you know, which by the way I we can pick that bone another day. But yeah, that's like the the elevated form of writing, and that's where it's all very much character led. It's experimental. Yeah. Um, you learn about what it is to be alive or some shit. I don't know. Whatever they... I don't know. You learn about the art form oh, or whatever. God, my and mom reads those books. Yeah. I, I had to read them for uni. And I like a lot of them, but man, the people who like them are assholes. Um, and in that space, it's very much character-led because what you want to do is let the story not be confined by the structures of theory that we've yeah. developed and these ideas of storytelling. But like, if you want to write an enjoyable story... If you want to write a story that's fun to read, yeah. what you have to do is, is, is apply <laughs> some structural guidelines... <laughs> And pick up a fucking textbook. And I get that she was a she she's not a young writer in terms of age, but she's a young writer in terms of like she hadn't done that stuff before. And that's why, you yeah. know, you you can look at some other really famous successful authors and their early work has that kind of that that freeness from form 
that made them successful. But on a long-term scale, it never works unless you're like a Neil Gaiman or someone like that. Mm. And like, unless you're an actual genius, it's probably not going to work for you. Um, but yeah, I think that the fact that it's character-led is good because it meant that she told the story she wanted. But I think that from from a enjoying to read it perspective, I just was like, oh, this is so overwritten. I'll cut to the okay. We're going to cut back to the end of the act, and it never happened. Yeah. Um, I got one more Shakespeare theme if you want to hear it, and that's time, which is super present in this book. Ooh. Yeah. Again, this whole thing is basically just Romeo and Juliet. Um, in Romeo and Juliet, the two lovers maintain this like imaginary world where the real world consequences and or time frame don't really exist. Um, you see this a few times in the play where like they'll be meeting it like in the evening, and then other characters in the next scene will reference that it's been two days, but they'll be talking like it's been months and years and stuff since they fell in love and shit. Um, they also swear to love each other under the moon and stars, which is no accident because the stars were thought to control human fate, i.e. star-crossed lovers. Right. That's where that phrase comes from, gang. Yep. And it's then no surprise that Akiva and Madrigal meet at night under the cover of darkness. Yeah. It's almost go- like it's the same story. Yeah. Um, I, I thought, like, another thing, like, when you it literally, like... I keep saying literally, and I want to stop it. Um, it's literally literal. Sh- that was my fault because I started saying literally to mean literally, and now I've ruined it for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, um, so you know how Romeo and Juliet starts with that thing, like the two houses both alike in dignity, yeah. and that thing. You know? Yeah. Uh, this book starts with once upon a time, an angel and a devil fell in love. It did not end well. God damn it, Lonnie Taylor! You you've done a good job of Shakespeare. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Like, like if that's what if that's what she was going for, which it feels like she might have been. I don't want to put words in her mouth yeah. or on her page, but it does feel that way. Um, the time thing goes even deeper because uh, there is a there is a theme within the time frame of Romeo and Juliet. The taste I mentioned that before, where their courtship takes like, depending on the version you see, uh, the play the actual play itself is kind of not super clear. Yeah, but their courtship takes like four to six days between when when they start to. Hang and they out literally and then, get married and have sex. Yeah. And then, die. and then when they get murderized, that's like about four to six days. Um, Smoke and Bone flips this idea by having Karu and Akiva's courtship last like less than four days, while their love is born of a history that lasts a month or two. The perfect amount of time to a fall month. in love. It's a month, right? Uh, Madrigal and uh, Akiva, when they reconnect and actually spend time together, that's a month, right? I don't count the two right. years they're apart because oh, that's don't some count that stuff. that's some dog shit bullshit lies. Oh, maybe. Where maybe. they just she touched him once and he was like, "I've never fucked." Mind before. you, like they. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, like she touches him. She she saves his life and then he devotes the next two years to finding her and she does the same thing with him. Well, she doesn't. She just kind oh, of. Sorry, forgets. she chills out and he he gets. She's about to get engaged to like the the wolf man. Yeah, the white white wolf, wolf guy yeah. who's like not the leader but like. The son of the yeah, leader, he was like the right hand of the war chief or something. Or I don't know. He I sounded forget. like an asshole, by the way. Well, he was clearly meant to be an asshole and sexist and rapey. Yeah, he did have a very rapey vibe, which I'm very <laughs> uncomfortable about. Yeah, me too. I was like, oh, I don't like that. When he rips her dress, I was like, no. <laughs> when he like yeah. he like I don't know, but he plucked. I was like, no, 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 no. He was clearly meant to be very rapey. Yeah, he had that. I mean, he had claws and shit. Like, I don't think yeah. that they would. Also, he's a wolf, so he's a predator. The, the metaphor is not clever again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't hate to be that guy, but it's also magical. Had horns and wings. She was literally a devil. Like and, and like, freaking brimstone has horns as well, like big curly ones. But he's also got a cute cat tail. 
What? Really? He's got a big old tail. It's described as being cat-like. It's not a cat's tail, but I imagine and there's one point I where- I assume it's like a leopard or something I don't. Like I would hope so. But there's one point where Madrigal is describing growing up in the workshop, and she describes like the image of him sitting behind his desk with his tail flicking back and forth angrily like a cat's might, and I thought that was very cute. Oh, yeah. Um, which made me just want to like cuddle Brimstone, but he'd be so mad. <laughs> He's so angry. Oh, I, I'm sure he's just like a big softy when you get to know him. Well, he's like a big. I, I reckon he would have been a big teddy bear, but then the war happened and he's become this like gruff old man. Well, no, know? because before that he was being tortured for pain. I think maybe he's had a rough life and we should. I think he'd be up for a cuddle. Yeah. Bit of solace. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So that being said, like I kind, I kind of think that if if this book is a reinterpretation of that Romeo and Juliet thing, that fate stuff, and that we talked a bit more about like the time thing and all that stuff. Like, does that give you any more insight into, like, whether you think that this is supposed to be taken as, like, a big drama or, like, as, as like, a a, a tragedy? Because I didn't feel, I don't know, it, it felt much more like metropolitan drama than it did to me, like, a Greek tragedy where it was like, oh, they couldn't yeah. have escaped this I mean, fate. probably. But at the same time, just this, like, starting bit, mm-hmm. like, it clues you in from, like, the first page that, hey, fam, this isn't going to end well. Right. Yeah. I... Yeah, that's fair. I wonder if that, though, looking back on it now, because each each of those sections has that kind of preface, right? Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's very commercial fiction in that, very. not in a bad way, but just in a way where it's like that stuff is so that when you pick up the book, you don't have to like so like you read the blurb and you're like, also the blurb spoils the first act of the book. Um, yeah. By the way, yeah, it does. The 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 the, the portals disappearing. I didn't read the blurb before I bought it because you just said you should buy it. Well, she doesn't have to choose anyway. Yeah, uh, what like, says now she the... gets forced out and then the portals close, so there's like no choosing. Like there's no timer on yeah. the portals closing. Again, very commercial fiction. Um, now the doors to elsewhere are closing, and Kara must choose between the safety of her human life and the dangers of a war-ravaged world that may hold the answer she's always sought. That last paragraph doesn't happen, but the fact that it says now the doors to elsewhere are closing ruins the central premise of the book that you need to discover in the book for it to be exciting. Because that one plot point is brought up three or four times and proposed as the most important part of the book. And as we discussed earlier, the the relevance of who did that, which was Akiva, is reintroduced again in that flashback during the ending. Like, that is the central crux of the book. And they were like, no, put it in the, put it in the blurb. That's why I fucking hate some Publishers yeah. sometimes just... Marketing teams are like, how do we get teens to read it? And they just, they fucking ruin it. But I didn't read it, so I was safe, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh... Yeah, overall thoughts, kind of to wrap this up, like, I, you said earlier that you had a really good time with it. I had fleeting moments where I could see the genius that was waiting to be there. Like, I could see, in my head, I was like, in five years, she is going to be a great writer. Yeah, I guess I was less critical about it, but like, like, looking back on it, there were definitely points that dragged, especially the flashback. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just think that could have been fixed by like, the editor could have looked at that and gone, Oh, well, structurally, this doesn't make any sense. What we need to do is... There's tons of ways you could have done it. You could have reordered the whole story so that it was like a chapter on, chapter off. Yeah. And it, it, well, each like, arc the magical parts five. don't even need to be front-loaded right at the back. I know front-loaded is bad. Like, I know what you mean, yeah. though. Uh, no, like, they were. They were front-loaded for the ending. Yeah. So yeah. you don't need to even front-load that all at the back. because Because we don't know that Madrigal is Karoo until the very end, so... So why bother... Why bother hiding it? Yeah, it would have been great if you'd been learning about Madrigal the whole time as a separate person. Exactly. And then it's like, oh, the payoff is like, oh, shit, they're the yeah. same person. I was worried for a second there that she would be like, 
related to Madrigal in some way. Oh, I was like, daughter? I had that moment for, um, I had that as well, where I'm like, is he going to fuck his daughter? Like, I had that, yeah. Which, but that that only happens because it's not, there's not enough context throughout for you to connect the dots because you only learn it at the end in that flashback. And again, like, there was little things in the story throughout where I just went, oh, that could have been really easily reshaped into something that would have been really kind of um, less obvious and there's a lot of this story that i was like oh that's obvious that's that's like a not lazy but like that's that's the thing that you do if Uh, and like some things are just kind of left hanging too where like you have her best friend Duzana, Mm -hmm. and she's just like um okay i'm just gonna leave you behind on earth now i didn't Um, mind that as much because it meant it felt i felt like there was when she comes back there's gonna be consequences but at the same time like it it didn't feel necessary to the way that payoff played out. It should have been subtext. A lot of this book, like, it could have been probably half the length, and you could have put a lot of the stuff into subtext, and it would have been a punchy, crazy ride, and you read back through it, and you'd be like, oh, like, look at all of this stuff that she's seeded through the exposition. That could have been crazy. But I still had a really good time. Yeah. Um, I just, I always want books to be better, because I feel like if they are, then, like, the author's going to have, like, I don't know, like, I just want stuff to be better because I feel like it's great for the person that wrote it where you're like, oh, yeah. that's incredible and that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is a product of the commercialization. Oh, God, I'm going to sound like such a fucking hero. <laughs> um, this kind of stuff is, like, a product of the commercialization of fiction instead of, like, focusing on the thing, which is the writing. Um, right. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a different way to approach stuff. Yeah. And I think that if a lot of our audience of people that make stuff, and if you're a writer, I think one thing I'd encourage you to do is find a find an agent. Um, again, it depends on how you want to write and what the kind of successes you want to have. But find an agent if you're gonna go down the agent route, because I know Lonnie Taylor has a great agent. Find an agent who understands like the the central reason that you're making the thing, and that if commercial fiction isn't the way to go, there are other avenues to pursue what you want to do. If that's the case, that's all I'll say. But I had a really good time with this book. Um, we do have to wrap up, but I did want to say before we get to the end of this thing that next month is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Yay. I'm very excited. Um, if you wanted to vote on the book that we uh, read each month for Book Club, and we re- we tend to do these like at the start of each month. It's currently the second, so like these kind of go out in the first week of each month, so you have about a month to read the book. Uh, if you wanted to help vote or suggest books we should read, we have the world's nerdiest Google Doc, but you can just suggest them through our Patreon at patreon.com slash DCMworks. All you have to do is subscribe for $3 a month. You get access to a ton of back content, early access to different things. You can vote on books. You can suggest topics for our other podcasts and shows. Uh, you get all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff as well as uh, over 60-plus hours of additional podcasts. So that's all there for you to dig into should you desire. Um, otherwise, we're on all the socials at all the normal places. Um, yep. It's it's all DCM works everywhere. Uh, DCM.works if you just want to go to the one place to get to everywhere. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's about it. If you enjoy this, we do a weekly podcast called Art for Artists where uh, me and Ben, Laura's partner, sit down and we uh, break down and analyze uh, something from pop culture each week that isn't a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because Ben doesn't read. Because Ben can't read is what I've been told. Uh, <laughs> hashtag fake news. Uh, and we try and learn something from it. And we've kind of ramped up the show lately to include more research and depth and stuff, which I'm really enjoying. So if you want to do that, you can. Uh, that's all on the YouTube channel and the iTunes feed. But if you just wanted to follow us individually, I'm at DCMIHatePie. I'm at Laura Ducky B. And we'll see you guys next month.